Welcome to Mates in Courage, brought to you by Good News Unlimited. Be part of a conversation between Graham Hood, champion fisherman, airline pilot and school dropout, and Ali Gonzalez, wannabe fisherman and holder of more useless degrees than you can poke a stick at. What could these two possibly have in common? The fact that neither of them have anything to hide. That's what. Mates in Courage. Take a listen. Now, Graeme, we both like fishing. Mm-hmm. You're a successful fisherman and I'm a dismal failure. <laughs> when uh, fish hear the name Gonzales, they laugh. I can see the bubbles in the water. Um, <laughs> what a concept. Like, one of the ways that you've done me wrong is you haven't taken me fishing enough. You, you took pity on me once and took my son and I fishing on the Tweed once in a little tinny. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was a failure, wasn't it? That's because I was with you. Yeah, I've got to be honest with you, though, Ellie, and in defence of myself, I haven't fished since that day. You're kidding. I have not fished since that day. So so I scarred you. <laughs> You're holding me to account for something that I, I haven't deliberately done. I just haven't fished. Okay, so when are we going fishing? You should be asking I me think... why, why I haven't fished. Okay, why haven't you fished? Because I'm too busy doing this sort of stuff and whatever and establishing a lot of things. But anyway... I've just transferred the registration of my boat and trailer from Queensland to New South Wales. And the, and the boat is actually out of the shed now, and I'm cleaning it up, yeah. and it'll be going on the water soon. Yeah, because that's where you live now. It's that only a little 3.7-metre tinny. All but right, that's... good. Early December, I'm going to be up there at uh, Yamba. Early December. Hopefully my knees yeah. will be ready to go by then. Okay, so think <coughs> fishing. Well, well I, I want to go to Iluka to go fishing. That's it. So, Are you going to Woody Head again? Probably. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we love it there. Tell me about uh, one of your early fishing experiences, and I'll tell you about one of mine. My nickname and the name of my boat is Hucky. We call my little tinny Hucky, short for Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. And so when I was going through a pretty tumultuous childhood, I lived, I was lucky enough to live on the water in the Port Hacking River. Mm -hmm. On the one trip, fishing trip my dad did out of three with me, uh, we hired a boat at Guymere Bay and we, we had this rowing boat and we were going to go fishing and we rode past a, a very steep bush block and they had a rusty old for sale sign on the waterfront and Dad was transfixed by this possibility of actually living in such a beautiful spot. Mm. And so when we got home, he um, he made a phone call and uh, rang the, the lady who owned that block of land and he got a beautiful piece of waterfront property for $3,000. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't afford to... Uh, live there there was no house on it but the only way we could live there is to have a caravan and we lived on that block in a caravan for many years wow and i love fishing i i was called huckleberry finn because in the darkness of the stuff that was going on with my mum and dad and uh, my own childhood issues i would always find a way to escape to the river and be a bit of a river rat and i love that and i i used to spend a lot of time on my own doing that there were some men living next to um uh, around us on that block there were some old homes on the waterfront and these old men I used to look at them like fishing gods because around their boat sheds they had uh, nailed to the trees the heads dried out heads of <laughs> very big flathead and very big jewfish I'm talking about Mulloway that uh, jewfish and Mulloway are the same uh, these are fish are about 60 pounds or six feet in length and they're big fish wow beautiful fish and I used to dream of catching one of these things. And every now and then these men would row out their old clinker-built dories and anchor just off the waterfront where we lived. And they'd sit there all night and you'd see their cigarettes glowing in the dark. And they'd where, be, where was that? Uh, just south of Sydney, Port okay. Hacking River. Right. And then uh, I'd lie there watching them, hiding in the bushes, watching as they came in. And I'd see them dragging these huge carcasses up the uh, boat ramp over their shoulders and these would be massive jewfish and I look at that now and I think oh that beautiful animal needed to live you know but back in those days everyone wanted to catch them and kill them and so uh, I used to want to I used to go and catch bait for these guys I'd Mm. go and catch live yellowtail for them and squid and in the hope that if I gave them bait they might take me fishing and they never did (laughs) one night I planned well I've I've seen where these men go fishing and there was a place over on the foreshore of the Royal National Park called uh, The Pocket and it was a renowned spot for big jewfish. And um, I remember one of my neighbours had a little six-foot wooden rowing boat 
that was just left tied up next to mm. where I lived. Mm. And after dark, I went down with my hurricane lamp, my kerosene lamp, and I had a, a fishing creel that had big hand reels in it. I mm. didn't have rods in those days. It was just hand lines. And I had my supply of bait, and I borrowed the neighbour's boat without his permission. You could reduce that phrase, borrowed my neighbour's boat without his permission, into a single word, couldn't you? I stole it. All right. Okay. And, and I took it, I rode across to the pocket, which was about a, a one-hour a, a one pull on the oars to get to where I needed to go. Yeah. It was pretty slow. And it was a very unstable boat. It was a tiny little boat. Yeah. I was a pretty big lump of a kid. I think I was about 13 at the time. I'd been observing these guys the way they fished. I knew all their techniques and everything. So I'd set about, I was going to do it exactly the way they did. And when I came back with a six-foot jewfish hanging over both sides of the boat, they would all think I was a hero and they'd forget the fact that I borrowed it without their permission. Okay. Stole it without their permission. So uh, I set myself up. I put an anchor out the back of the boat, an anchor out the front, and I was sitting parallel to the shoreline in the spot where I reckoned that they would have to be. And where were you meant to be that day? Well, I was meant to have been at school, uh, but I didn't attend school very much. Okay. My parents didn't know I didn't attend, but I didn't. Yeah. And, I, uh, never, I, I never wagged a single day. Oh, you wouldn't because you're so perfect. I was just a perfect child. You're such a perfect child, you know. Anyway. Your father would have gone nuts having me for a son. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway. I drove him crazy already. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember uh, we, I'd set the boat up and I cast this line, a couple of uh, big hand lines out. They were 60-pound breaking strain fishing lines. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they didn't have sinkers on them because the bait had to drift slowly down to the bottom in the hope that that would entice the fish to grab it. Mm-hmm. And I'd put out about three or four metres of slack line in the bottom of the boat and I had a matchbox with a couple of little sinkers in it. And I'd sit that on the top of the line between the line and the side of the boat at the gunnel so that if the line started to run, the matchbox would fall into the boat and it would rattle and it would alert me the fact that there was a fish actually biting on the line. And I'm sitting there for hours and nothing's happening. And I can hear people in the distance shuffling around way over where I live because water, you know, the sound travels on water and I could see lights and there were obviously people looking for me. Looking for the boat. Yeah. And all of a sudden I thought, I I better go in. I'm going to be in real trouble. Next minute I heard the matchbox drop and I held my hurricane lamp up and I looked down and I saw coils of line feeding out off the bottom of the boat and it got to the spool and that's when I picked it up and I grabbed it really hard and I jerked hard to set the hook in the fish's mm-hmm. mouth. And it worked, but the salt-encrusted line also cut a deep cut into my fingers as the fish took off. Ouch. And I had this line peeling through my fingers and there was blood running off the bottom of my hand and it was really painful, I remember. Mm. And I spent an hour in a tussle with this fish and every time I stood up to try and fight to get the thing, get some more line back in, the boat would nearly tip over. So I had to fight it from a seating position. And I got to a point where the water was filled with phosphorus. Any movement in the water would generate this electrical light show under the surface. And the water was filled with phosphorus as this big fish was coming to the surface. And there was enough moon for me to see that this was a really big mm-hmm. jewfish. He would have been about six feet long. Mm-hmm. And I had nothing to grapple with him with. All I had was a line. I didn't have a net. The net would have been useless anyway because it was too small. I didn't have. I didn't think about that. I I didn't really think I was going to get one. Mm. And I I didn't have a a gaff hook that Mm -hmm. I could hook him and drag him into the boat. So I thought if I can get him, tire him out, and get him close enough to the boat that I can reach over and grab underneath his gills and just skull drag him over the side (laughs) of the boat into the boat on top of me, that I'd be fine. On this very unstable boat. On this very unstable boat. And uh, so after about an hour, I got him to a point where he was lying motionless on his side next to the boat, exhausted. And I dropped the lines. I had great rafts of line Mm -hmm. in my hand. I dropped those and the loops of line fell over the rollock of the boat that the oars would sit in. And I reached down to grab this fish by the gills. And when I touched him, he took off again and he darted deep. And the loops around the rollocks got really tight and the boat started to tip Mm. and next minute it released. There was nothing there. And I dragged the line up and the hook that was in the fish's mouth had straightened under the weight of his last charge and pulled out and I lost him. And I just watched him. He came up near the surface again and he just drifted off. And I watched in horror 
as my chance for going home a, a fishing hero was just totally diminished. That's the classic, the one that got away story. The one that got away story. Well, I wasn't the one that got away because I started to row back and a boat was coming out to where I was. And it was these old men and they said, where have you been? And I said, I've been, I just had this big fight with a Jewfish and I told them what happened and I was all excited and everything. And they said, well, that's not going to help you when you get home, boy, because (laughs) there's a strap waiting for you with your name on it. Your dad's not very happy. And neither is Alf, the guy that you borrowed the boat from. (laughs) And I remember going back and facing my medicine. But, you know, the, you know, we talk about, we're talking about a fishing story, but the real essence of being on the river for a kid like I was in those days was the fact that I felt safe out there and I didn't mm. feel safe at home. I didn't feel... Um, I felt like I could really be at one with me and I, I had a lot of very deep thoughts when I was a kid mm. out in the boat. And I explored all the foreshores of the Royal National Park and I knew where all the caves were in the Aboriginal paintings and and uh, it was a really good way to spend my childhood. Mm. But I, I also remember my dad wouldn't take me fishing so my mum arranged with the guy that she worked with. In a, uh, she worked in a, an importing warehouse in Sydney for this guy to come one Saturday and hire a boat and take me fishing. And to my horror, he was a pedophile. And uh, we hired a boat like the one I hired with my dad and he made me row. And we rowed a long way from home before he started to make his intentions clear to me. Mm. And I was a bit of a rascal as a kid and I think I think the Huckleberry Finn in me made me pretty tenacious and I knew what this guy was on about and I was too far away from home to do anything and the river was fairly shark infested. Mm. And I spent eight or nine hours with this guy making advances and I held him at bay I had a fishing knife in my hand the whole time and I just said to him if you come near me I'll just stab you in the hand with this Mm. and I I held him at bay for the whole time and then I had to row the boat back when it was time to take it back to the boat shed and I felt really vulnerable and then my vision of safety for the river was lost in that encounter Mm. but it made me a bit more of a loner you know, I didn't trust people after that. Mm. I remember telling my my family what had happened and uh, and my dad said to my mum, well, you better deal with this when you go to work on Monday and tell this bloke that he's, you know, what well, he shouldn't have done that. And that was... Oh, wow. And the thing was, it was school holidays and I was I used to go to work with my mum and sit in the car and read comic books while she was at work because there was no one to look after me. Mm. And I was, I'm sitting in the car over the road from the warehouse where she was working and I saw him go to... Uh, her to talk to her about something in the loading bay and she was poking him in the chest and pointing over at me and mm. and he's looking at me and next minute he walks across to the car on his own not with mum to me and I'm watching him each step one after the other getting closer to me and he had this evil look in his eye and he leaned through the open window because it was a really hot day and mm. I had the windows down and I'm leaning right back against the other side of the car and he looked at me with this evil intent and he just said, uh, oh, you've been telling stories about me, have you? Hmm. I told you what had happened if you said anything. And uh, he went on to threaten and accuse and uh, and I felt incredibly vulnerable. Man, oh man, I was, you know, my mum and dad didn't know any other way to deal with it, I guess. Mm. But the river for me became a place where I was able to get away and also form relationships. There were some great people that, I formed relationships with on the river that made made it important for me. And I think fishing is about relationships. Mm. I think, you know, even fishing on your own, you develop a relationship with who you see yourself as being. Well, let let me tell you a fishing story of my own. Mm. Uh, nowhere, nowhere as uh, exciting as yours. Um, I wish I had been in that boat when you got that big fish. I might have helped you haul it in, but... Uh, when I was a kid, and I would have been maybe uh, eight years old or something like that, uh, I'd never been fishing. My father never went fishing. Uh, but a friend of his from work offered to take, uh, take him fishing. Uh, we lived in Sydney. And uh, so uh, my father asked me if I wanted to come, and I said yes. So I remember we had to get up very early in the morning, and we were going to go fishing in Botany Bay. Yeah. All uh, right. Yep. And uh, so I got up very early in the morning, oh, I don't know, maybe five or four in the morning. And we didn't have a car. We, when I was growing up, we didn't have a phone, we didn't have a car. Um, my parents were very frugal. 
uh, didn't spend money on anything. So if someone didn't give us a lift, we didn't go anywhere. Um, and so this man picked us up in the car. I remember one of the vivid memories I have, uh, Graham, is going from one end of Sydney to the other because we lived at, at Auburn, which is now like the geographic centre of Sydney or something else. It's probably further west now. But anyway, from going from Auburn in the west all the way to Botany Bay and not seeing a car mm. uh, at around 4.30 or 5 in the morning. You couldn't do that today. Uh, you can when you drive to where I live. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, but it's... A, yeah, yeah, anyway, middle, that's... Yeah. In paradise in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, exactly. North, North New South Wales. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And when we got there, I'd never been fishing, knew nothing about fishing, uh, but everyone whipped out hand lines and fishing rods and someone had to do, do my tackle and, and whatever. Um, and uh, they were fishing for sand whiting because that's what uh, yeah. there is there off this wooden pier. Mm-hmm. Uh, must have been an enclosed swimming area or something because it was kind of square. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I, everyone uh, was getting bites and hauling sand whiting in. Uh, I got a few bites, but I didn't get, I didn't haul anything in, mm-hmm. nothing. Mm-hmm. And I was so disappointed. I couldn't work out what I was doing different, that it wasn't working for me. I know mm-hmm. now it's because my family name's Gonzalez. Um, <laughs> but, but it just didn't happen for me. But I remember just being there uh, and I fell in love with fishing. Just being there, like in the, in the middle of the water, watching the, you know, the swell of the, of the waves, watching the sun come up because it was really early. And the peace of that moment, and what do you think about when you go fishing? Oh, what do I think about? Nothing, nothing intentionally. It's it's just being surrounded by peace, and the repetitive action of, uh, you know, having to redo your tackle because you know you got snagged, or you know, and uh, just reeling it in slowly, or whatever, whatever it is you're doing, just that that repetition and the peace. For me, because I've gotten used to not catching anything, I don't care if I don't catch anything. Yeah, it's not about the catching. In fact, when my father died, I was the day after I went fishing. Down to the sand pumping, Jenny. Well, no, actually down down to the uh, the Broadwater, mm-hmm. the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually picked a spot where I'd never fished before where I knew it was snaggy. Mm-hmm. And I cast the line in, it gets snagged. Reel it back in, redo the tackle, throw it in, get snagged, reel it back in. I did that for hours and it was so therapeutic for me because it, right in front of me there were dolphins playing. Mm-hmm. That's why you weren't getting any fish. Yeah, oh, is that why? Yeah. And when I said that I'm not thinking about anything, nothing, it's that I'm not thinking about anything intentionally. It's, it's just whatever thoughts I have. It's you know, nice. That's... They're not forced. Yeah, I, I yeah. Love, what I love about fishing is it actually puts you into the perfect present. That's it. That's it. You're not th- worried about what, ha- what just happened or what's going to happen. I read recently yeah. that the human mind can only contemplate two things, the mm. past and the future. Mm. It's not very good at working right in the present. Mm. So I guess the present's such a fleeting thing. It's here now and then it's gone. But uh, I remember sitting in a boat once... Uh, trying to break the ice with somebody I hadn't been fishing with before. And I said to him, what would you want your kids to say about you at your funeral? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Boy, what a conversation. What came from that was amazing. This guy just didn't know. And he sat there and he said, no one's ever asked me that question. I said, I've never asked myself that question either. I hope, you know, I hate talking about funerals all the time, but funerals should be a celebration, really. Mm. And... um and then I've used that in talks with men and, and I do a fair bit of public speaking around mm-hmm. manhood issues and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, and I'll often ask the audience, you know, what would you like your, your children to say about you at your funeral? And you can see the looks on these men's faces. I, I once asked a high-profile person in Queensland, I won't mention his name, you, you used to come to our men's sheds, mm. didn't you? Yeah, I think I know who it is. Yeah, and... Um, and you know, we were talking about this this man's career, and he was of a high enough profile that he he was delivered to um, the shed night that we had in Narang, mm-hmm. 
uh, by a, a, um, a government car, mm. chauffeur-driven car. So he turned up and, and we talked about his career. And in the middle of the interview, I asked him what he would like his kids to say about him at his funeral. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't answer it. Mm. And he was embarrassed. And I changed the topic very quickly. And um, he rang me a couple of days later and said, I haven't been able to sleep since you asked me that question. Mm. It's a big question, and and I wonder what um, people who might be listening to us would think. And the other question that that led from that for me was, I talked to a lot of men who um, who are doubting their um, their relationships with their children. Mm-hmm. And one big question I came up with recently was, would you like your daughter to marry a man like you? <laughs> I've only ever had one or two positives. All the rest of them say no. Mm. Um, and then my next question is well what is it about your character that is being highlighted by that question that you might need to work on you know Graham, I would like my daughter to marry a man like me mm-hmm. because despite all my flaws I'm a good man you are a good man and I would like my daughter to marry a man like you Ellie you would? yeah I would oh, it's too late <laughs> it's too late you're already taken <laughs> that's it but no the, the the truth is we need we need to ask ourselves those questions because that forms the basis of our relationship our character is the basis of our relationship you're talking about relationships relationships and you said before that one of the things you got from fishing in your early years was relationships i can't say that's true of me because i've only except in the rarest occasions ever been fishing by myself unless you're talking about a relationship with myself um, well, that's important. Which is important. But here's my question. What is it about... And, and I'm not saying, you know, it's not a good thing to go fishing and have that break, you know, but I see so many men men here on the Gold Coast. I go for a walk along, you know, the Spit Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see so many men spending their days and nights fishing. And they're not with their wives. They're not with their families. What is it that fishing seems to give men that other relation that they don't seem to find in other relationships? I think for a start, before we go into that side of it, to think that they're not being with their families and their wives. And a lot of families who go fishing together as well, and I think there's a lot of. Um, it's, That'd be great if my family did. <laughs> yeah, I know. But the thing is, the thing is that we. Um, we can love the people that we're with. We can love our wives and children. Yeah. And not necessarily express our love to them in the way that they feel it. For example, you know, I refer to Dr. Gary Chapman's five love languages when I, mm-hmm. when I talk about this. Where a lot of men who might be out fishing when you say they, they perhaps should be home with their wives... You know, a lot of men are on a treadmill these days and we're talking about the expectations of life that happen. And the expectations are we have to give our children uh, the best education. We have to send them to the best private school if we can afford it. We have to have the latest up-to-date car. We have to live in a flash house that's got a giant mortgage. We have to have a pool in the backyard. Every kid has to have a device with eye in front of it. Mm-hmm. And all those that's things it. cost a great deal of money. And we have to go um, We have to, go to uh, Disneyland for our holidays every year. Yep. Um I don't know. I don't identify with many of those, but I know the expectations. Yeah. That, so yeah. the thing with expectations is that expectations lead to uh, judgment and criticism when they're not met. Mm, so a lot of men feel that they're tied to these expectations rather than an expectancy. So men have an expectation of what it means to be a father. What do you mean, rather than an expectancy? Well, let's let's say you and I, for example, we don't see each other an awful lot, even though we're very close friends. Um, if you or I had an expectation about our friendship that required for that expectation to be met that I had a phone call from you at least once a week, that I, I visited you on the way to work, driving past you know at least mm-hmm. once a month, if that expectation is not met, mm-hmm. then it brings in a whole lot of resentment, anxiety, uh, judgment about our relationship. Mm. But if we replace expectation with expectancy then what we have is, I know if I have an expectancy about my relationship with you, it would be this, that every time I get to get to catch up with Ellie, we're going to have a good time, we're going to have a laugh, and we're going to have a deep conversation, and I'm enjoying that expectancy. 
I'm not driving up to your place thinking, oh, the first thing he's going to say was, oh, you know, mm-hmm. I haven't seen you for years. What, I thought you didn't love me anymore, all that sort of stuff. You know what I mean? That's the difference between expectancy and expectation. I think that's where God wants us to be. He has an expectancy that when we spend time with him, it'll be good if we see him as good. Mm-hmm. But too many of us live around what we see as God having an expectation of how we live. Sure. So our families are built on expectations too. You know, wives are saying, you know, well, if he really loved me, he'd be here helping me get the dinner ready. and mm-hmm. Or he'd be going shopping with me and holding my hand and not out fishing. But we've got to remember too that maybe while the husband's out fishing, the wife's out having coffee with the girlfriends. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be, if we're, if we're talking about healthy manhood, there needs to be a relationship amongst men. And I think fishing is one of the great ways. Some team sports are really good. In, in bonding with men. But fishing provides an opportunity for men to just be mm-hmm. and be together and to share questions, the big questions of life, if they want to, or if not, just to be. Be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that you're okay. And fishing's really good for that. The See, trouble- I'd, I'd rather be fishing and having this conversation now. That'd be great. Well, all we've got to do is move the studio onto a boat. That'd be good. <laughs> and we could go and do that. I mean, I'm sure we could do that. Yeah. Uh, there's, I've, I've seen a lot of good conversations on fishing TV shows. And they're out on the water and they're catching fish and they're talking about life and all that sort of stuff. It's normally rubbish, but anyway. What's really important for all of us to recognise is that what makes you feel loved and me feel loved may be vastly different things. And Gary Chapman talks about that with the five love languages. Mm. He talks about five basic emotional fuels. One is physical touch, Mm -hmm. uh, quality time, words of affirmation, gifts and acts of service. They're the five fuels that people feel love through. Now let's let's look at a man and a wife who've been married for 30 years. They've raised a couple of kids. The kids have gone off. They're at university and they're doing everything fine. This family has been solid. The couple has been pretty solid. And uh, every day the man goes off to do his job. And he finds his wife uh, in the house somewhere before he leaves. And he gives her a hug and a kiss and says, Bye, honey, I'll call you at lunchtime and I'll see you tonight. Let me know if you want me to bring anything home. I love you too, sweetheart. Have a nice day. They go off. Mm -hmm. Uh, She does what she does through the day. He's off at work and he comes home about six o'clock that night. And he walks into the kitchen and the first thing he sees is her back to him and she's preparing something for their dinner. And he walks up behind her and puts his arm around her waist and he snuggles into her neck and he says, Hi, gorgeous, I'm home. And she shrugs her shoulders and she says, Not now, can't you see I'm busy? What's his first emotional reaction, do you think? Well, it'd be like, huh? Rejection? Yeah. He feels rejected. So he goes to the the, uh, fridge and he grabs a drink and he goes into the lounge room and he sits down and... uh, turns the six o'clock news on and he peels the top off his can and he has a drink and he thinks to himself, I don't think she loves me anymore because if she really loved me, she would have turned around and given me a hug when I got home. And while he's feeling inadequate and insecure in the relationship in the lounge room, she's in the kitchen saying, I don't think he loves me anymore because if he really loved me, he'd be in here helping me get the dinner ready. Uh Uh-huh. So the, the difference between their emotional needs is that he feels love expressed through physical touch. And I'm not talking about sex here. That's, it's part of it, but it's mm. not the, the be-all and end-all. Physical touch is how he feels connected to his wife. She feels connected when he does things for her, mm-hmm. acts of service. Do they love each other? You bet they do. They raise kids together and they're 30 years married and they, they've had a good relationship. There's been no extra things going on in their lives. But because they express love and feel love in different ways, using different fuels, they are not connecting. And one of the things we do with, uh, with couples when we have them for our couples weekend is we help them to realise what each other's love languages are and we reconnect them. And we thank God for Gary Chapman's work in that area. He's, he's a counsellor of 30 years in marriage mm-hmm. and he's, he's been very, very, very good at doing this sort of stuff. Well, one, of, one of the things that, that happens is that how can I say this? I mean, men think they're showing love by working very hard to put, yeah, to put you know, uh, money in the bank account. Let's say. Let's look at let's look and at how, how does that that work? That's not one of the love languages. 
Is that just a cop-out? Well, it kind of is. Acts of service is a love language. Like doing that is an act of service. But let's look at, oh, let's look at the way I think God looks at our wants and needs. Quite often we think that God isn't answering our prayers because he's not giving us what we want. What we've got to get to understand is that he's more than likely, in fact, he is giving us what we need. And the difference between what we want and what we need is vastly different. It's a, it's a massive difference. Um, yeah, I'm starting to understand that. Yeah. So when we, when we really get that, for example, I said to a guy I worked with once, you know, uh, what do you do for fun on your days off? He said, I don't have fun. I've got kids. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, you know, <laughs> I get home, I get, the, I get the odd day off, and when I get home, I've got to run them to soccer lessons or soccer games and swimming lessons and ballet recitals, and I've got to work overtime to pay for the mortgage on the bigger house that I've had to buy, and they've got to, their, their school requires them to have an iPad, and, and uh, oh, we've got to go to LA for our holidays this year. And he said, I don't get time to scratch myself. And I said, why do you do all those things? And he said, well, it's what you're expected to do. Expected, expectation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, here's that word. And then I, I said to him, Who expects you to do that? He said, They do. I said, Are you family? He said, Society does. And I said, Have you ever asked your kids what they want? And he said, No. I said, Well, here's the story. If you, if you held a box in each hand, and in the box in the right hand, there was. Um, the life you've got now, the big flash house, mm-hmm. uh, the latest model BMWs in the driveway, the pool in the backyard, the kids are going to some really expensive uh, private school, mm-hmm. everyone's got an iPhone and an iPad and we're off, to, um, we're off to San Francisco for a holiday in Yosemite National Park and Dad's in our life 37 seconds a day because I think we referred to that before. Where, you know, The average Australian father spends 37 seconds a day in one-on-one and communication with each of his kids now the scary part of that statistic ellie is that by the time your child is six years old the television will have spent more time talking to your son or daughter than you will in their entire lifetime wow so when we consider that so then i said to him so that's what you've got in the one box the life you're offering them now Mm -hmm. and if you offered them another box that had you lived in a standard suburban house uh, you had a couple of 10-year-old cars. The kids went to a good public school. Um, there was, you know, one desktop computer in the house. If they wanted to go swimming, they went to the local baths to swim. And you went to Woody Head every weekend, cam- every uh, Christmas for your camping holiday. And Dad was in their life four hours a day. Which box do you reckon the kids would take? And he looked at me and he got it. They'd mm. take the one with me in their life four hours a day. Mm. But here's the trick to this question. You have to have sorted that out before your kids reach puberty. Because if you ask a kid after puberty that question, they'll say, no, you just you keep going to work and earn the money and give me all these things because having you, having you in my life for 37 mm. seconds a day is painful enough without having you in my life for four mm. hours a day. Because by the time you've gotten to that stage in their life and yours, you're like you're on this treadmill and you're running ragged and you're not very happy to be around and you feel like it's everybody else and nothing's ever done for me mm. and that's the treadmill we're on we have to realize what our kids need now in the right hand box he was giving them what he thought they wanted and probably what they did want but what they really needed was in the left hand box mm. and we have to understand the difference between need and want and that's one of the big failings we have in our Western society. See, in my own life, um, uh, I've always been in my kids' life. I've got a son and a daughter. Uh, they're adults now, uh, young adults. Uh, but I've always been in their lives more than 30 seconds a day. Mm-hmm. But it's been difficult for them, you know, and, and my relationship with them has been difficult because you know that they've seen me change very radically over the last, uh, you know, 10 12 years since you yep. met me yeah uh from from that very straight don't blame me for that yeah it's all your fault because <laughs> you said we were going to work together and that really well we had we've stuffed been, me up we've been on a 12-year course That's to get it. to this but you know that straight laced um puritanical legalistic you know mm-hmm. um fake person wearing a suit and tie mm-hmm. to someone who's much more relaxed and much less judgmental happy yep. in their own skin and that that transformation in me uh, has been difficult for me. It hasn't been quick, but relatively speaking, it's been really 
fast for my family, mm-hmm. for my kids, you know, for my wife and, and my two children. And it's been very difficult because, uh, you know, the, the kids have been at an age where they're, you know, they are vulnerable. They need stability. They need to see, uh, mm-hmm. they, they need to see a stable father figure mm-hmm. in a sense. And, and for me to now... Uh, not be so worried about things that I previously disapproved of very strongly and to and not to be judgmental whereas they always expected me to be judgmental it's been quite a journey for them they're getting to be okay now yeah uh, you know it takes time but that's part of their journey too mm. like if there was a, a world war in the last 12 years and you were called away into that that would have caused a dramatic upheaval in the way they looked at you and the way things happen and you may have come home scarred and defected from that in a, in a less than positive way. Well, that's a very radical change. It is, yeah. But I, I, think, um, I think that many men, sadly, never embrace change or they mm. change in a downward direction mm-hmm. in the sense of becoming more focused in on themselves. Or Why do you think that is? Bitter and because they don't know how to cope with life. They're scared. There's fear. That's it, Graham. False you know, evidence appearing real. Fear. Fear. Yeah. False. I heard another good one about that. What was that? Yeah, but that's a good one. False, uh, false evidence appearing fear. That's what really has driven most of my life, Graham. Mm. Fear. Mm, fear me too. What, of what others would think of me. Fear of not being the sort of man, the father, you know, that we uh, that I wanted to be. We talked about honour and chivalry and all that. Uh, in our uh, a previous session um, and uh, when you were talking about that I, I was thinking you know every every boy wants to be a knight in shining armor yep right it might be uh, uh, it might be you know a Star Wars Jedi Knight or whatever these days you know a policeman a fireman some is. kind of heroic role that's it yeah. that's right and and what and what ultimately works against us to send us in that uh, downward spiral too often is uh, that the experiences of our lives result in fear that we'll never be who we want to be. Who, the, or who we're expected to be. Who we're expected to be. There's that because, word expect, Yeah, because that's why we want to be who we want to be because, you know, yeah. it's the expectation we, we put on ourselves uh, because we look at uh, what others say we should be and how others see us and and that's all the stuff we 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 internalize and and then we never kind of match up how do you feel about the saying i use a lot which is um your strength lies in your vulnerability well how would you define that yeah look this is my response to that graham i think that these are the things that hurt our relationships all the stuff that we're talking about Mm. and the fact that we're not willing to be authentic and vulnerable is a really damaging thing to our relationships with as men, uh, not just with our spouses, with our children, with each other, and with each other. Mm-hmm. Right. So, what stops us from becoming vulnerable is fear. It's the root of all evil. Yeah, it really is. It's, fear. It's fear and. We can, you know, if we're just being superficial, we'd say it's fear of uh, society and its expectations and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But in the end, it's it's fear of uh, it's it's fear within ourselves um, of um, because we internalise that rubbish. You know, I know that there's expectations on me as a man, as a father, as a leader of a Christian ministry, and and whatever. Um, there's a lot of expectations that people have of me, but that's at the end of the day, that's not what I'm most fearful. At the end of the day, because, you know, that will always be there, but it's mm. because I have internalised those things mm. and made them my expectations, mm. and that's what's made me fearful in my life. And I know that that's what has, uh, you know, even damaged my relationships with my wife mm-hmm. and my children over time, because mm-hmm. what fear does is it closes you down. You know, you build walls. Yeah, and in my case, it made me more controlling. Mm-hmm. I built walls, but also became more controlling because building walls means you become more controlling. You know, and you become more judgmental, more dualistic, binary in the way that you see the world. 
And everyone is either a good person or a bad person. What they did is either wrong or it's good. You know, there's no greys, no in-betweens. And I'm, I, I mean, I'm in a much better place now because I can, you know, I don't judge relationships like that anymore. You know, I mm. choose to look at the good. Mm. And I, I know myself better, so I don't judge others by my own standards because they're no standards to judge anyone by. Ain't that the truth for all of us? Yeah. When your strength lies in your vulnerability... Um, it, for me, it's like, um, well, let's look at my, my role in my day job, uh, flying an aeroplane with a couple of hundred people on board. Um, as a captain sitting in the left-hand seat, you're meant to know as much as possible. In mm-hmm. fact, some people think you know everything, but that's absolutely untrue. Um, there are times when we've had complex situations to deal with, and I haven't known the answer. And we've always had successful outcomes when I actually turn to my crew and say, I don't know how to fix this at the moment. Have you guys got any ideas? And that relieves them to be able to say, oh, this guy, you know, we can actually approach this guy. He hasn't got a God complex. Um, He's obviously asking for our help. He needs us. We're an important part of his team. So then they come forward with a whole lot of different suggestions and observations that we can pull together to come up with a successful outcome. But if I was to be stuck in my pride and try and invent a solution to a problem that may be the totally incorrect outcome or lead to the totally, the most the, the worst possible outcome, then I haven't been brave at all. Well, I've I been know, foolish. I know, Graham, because we've talked about these, uh, you know, some of your experiences in Qantas before, mm. that you've also been a, a trainer in, what, human factors? Human factors, yeah. Yeah, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, the human factors in, you know, airline incidents. Well, you did the same in the railways. Yeah, yeah that's right. I, I had a safety management role once. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what happens when uh, when uh, someone uh, who's part of a crew in a cockpit thinks that they have all the answers. What about when it happens in church? It's a disaster. When you cannot be swayed, you're addicted. You're so addicted to your own personal beliefs that you can't see truth when it's standing right in front of you. And what happens when it happens in a marriage? The same outcomes. Relationships break down, the cycle of life breaks down, the cycle of love breaks down, and uh, distortions and separations occur. But ain't it the truth that, uh, you know, I mean, I've seen people grow old around me, and, well, before me, Mm -hmm. I'm really young. But you see so many people that, as they go through life, they shut down, you know. Instead of looking at things with curiosity, they... They look at things, you know, with judgment, immediate judgment. Mm-hmm. You know, their circle of friends narrows. You know, their interests narrow. Their opinions become the more, you know, more dogmatic. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm sure you've seen that. I've seen it so many times. Oh. But, but then, then there's these people <clears throat> who, as they go through life, they mellow, and they become warmer. Maturity. Is that what it is? I think it is a maturity. I, I'm, I'm starting to... They have better relationships. They, well, they do as a result because what they're, what they're dealing with... I'm, I'm starting to see spiritual growth occurring, a mellowness spiritually in, our, my, in Michelle and I's relationship with each other and with God, but also with our friends around us. And, and there's, a, there's a, a spiritual maturity that's actually, I believe, steering this conversation we're having. Yeah, because I want to be one of those people. You are one of those. We're growing in our we're growing in our understandings of um, of who God really is and what He wants. And um, too many of us are putting God at the top of our priority list, and we don't even know Him. And I really what believe. What do you mean? Well, um, how can we put God at the top of a list when we do it because we fear that we'll be punished if we don't and say that we know Him? Well, you you can't say you know Him then. You can't say you know him then. You can only know him by understanding the essence of his nature, and that is absolute love. The greatest lie ever ever, ever perpetuated about God was he's, that he's not trustworthy and he's not good. I had two choices in my life when I had that view of God, which I had for most of my life at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it is a, I would never have summarised it like that, but I did have that view of God. I had the choice of either going mad or... 
changing my view of God, and I chose the latter. Where else could you rest it? I mean, that's where it belongs. Um, the latter is the only way you can survive. If we, if we believe that God has an expectation on our performance and on meeting his criteria for a relationship, when we believe that, we are living in a spiritual, moral sense that relates to punishment and reward. For example, if we ask a child to brush their teeth, and I'm, I'm quoting from a book here that you know about. If we ask a child to brush their teeth, and if they don't brush their teeth, um, they won't be able to watch television tonight. They begrudgingly go off and brush their teeth. If we then say, if you brush your teeth, um, you can have ice cream for dessert. The first part was punishment. The second one is based on reward. But what we ultimately want them to do is to brush their teeth out of love. How does a child brush their teeth out of love? Well, firstly, love for themselves because they really believe that if they don't, their teeth will rot and fall out. And secondly, out of love for their mum and dad because if, they, if their teeth rot and fall out, then they've got to go to a dentist which will cost a lot of money and cause a lot of, um, a lot of uh, disruption to family life and getting people to appointments and everything. So if we can get a child to say, I brush, if we can get a child to say that I brush my teeth because I love my parents because I don't want them to... Um, I don't want them to have to pay for expensive dental bills because that means dad's got to work longer to, and be out of my life. Aren't they thinking of their relationships at a much better level than I'm doing this because if I do it, I'll get a reward at the end of it or if I do it, I won't get punished? Well, at those lower levels, the underlying thought is... Oh, well, you're, the answer is yes, but at those lower levels, what, what's going on inside, I think, would, would be in me or has been in me for too long is... I'm not good enough because it's about my performance. Mm -hmm. and, and I kind of think that that thinking that I'm not good enough, I'm not acceptable, uh, lies at the root of many, many broken relationships. Well, you and I already know that God sees you as lovable, acceptable, capable, washable, all the ables. And the opposite to that is less useless, worthless, hopeless. So when you have the right view of, of God, Graham, how, how does that transform your relationships? Well, if you see God as the essence of love... Now, you, you talked about earlier about a child falling over and then being beaten by mm. a stick, you know, by a father who says you're hopeless and you, know, you can't walk. And... When you see God that way, then you're not seeing love. You're just seeing punishment. But if we were created to love and be loved by a God who is love in its purest essence, I mean, everything I believe, if I put the Bible in a blender and, and then threw sacrilege. it... Sacrilege. and threw all the contents of the blender out onto the concrete driveway and looked at it, what I would see is love. Yeah. I think the Bible is from the first letter to the last, all about love. Mm. Tough love sometimes. Uh, but gracious love most of the time, a gracious forgiving love, which is really interconnected. It's all the same. And if we if we see God as a punishing dictator who's keeping a record of all our wrongs, and that's not what the book of Corinthians says. First Corinthians 13, I think it's uh, verses 4 and 5, talks about what God is. It talks about love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Well, let's take love away from that. Let's put God there. God is patient. God is kind. God keeps no track of wrongs. He's not boastful, he's not proud. If we see God that way, then we see the essence of who he wants us to be. Mm. And what that means is, even though we're the odd couple, I love you. Even though we're the odd couple, if anyone attacks you, they attack me. You stand, I stand, you fall, I fall. And that's how we should be with each and every one of us on this planet. Until we get that, we have not come anywhere near the expectancy that God has for our creation. I don't believe that for a fact. I believe that for a fact that we have to see God as he really is and not who he's been portrayed. Well, that's so different to how we see most relationships in our society that are based on a, a transaction. Yeah. You know, you do, you be nice to me and I'll be nice to you. Yeah, you get what you pay for. Mm. Ah, look. When you stop being nice to me, that's it. Yeah. Well... All I know is that there's a spiritual maturity happening in me that's happened of late that transcends, it transcends all notions of denomination and 
you know, I, I believe that we should be we shouldn't be having conflict about scripture. We should be having conversation about scripture. It was never designed to be a war. It was never designed to be a conflict. It's about growing in our understanding of who God really is and what He His expectancy is of our life. He doesn't want to be at the top of our list of priorities. He wants to be in the middle of our lives. He doesn't want to be set apart as something you know, that's unreachable, that has these enormous expectations. He wants to be in the middle of our decisions, in the middle of our joys, in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our triumphs. I've had so many people say to me, oh, you've got to be careful. God is a God of order. Well, how come he never shines brighter than in my chaos? (laughs) God shines like a beacon in my chaos. Don't tell me God is a God of order. I just don't get that. When you when you say God is a God of order, you're restricting God in your life. You're not you're not allowing Him to infiltrate. God, your heart. God is a redeeming God, and and the notion of redemption means He takes the chaos, you know, and and the rubbish, and and He transforms it into something that's beautiful. You know that the chaos is there, but now it's beautiful chaos because He is in it. Well, and he's working in it and through it. Yeah, We've got to keep this conversation going, Graeme. So when are you taking me fishing next? We'll have to take our producer with us too because he'll have to record the conversation we have <laughs> when we're fishing. So I better put an extra seat in the boat. For oh, Malcolm. we can just make it secret men's business. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, th- this, has been, this has been great, Ellie, and I'm, I'm looking forward to many more of these conversations. Yeah, I love Absolutely. you, brother. Love you too, mate. Mates in Courage. Brought to you by Good News Unlimited. To sign up for Graham and Ellie's daily spiritual message emails about recovering from addictions, hurts and hang-ups, visit goodnewsunlimited.com. To book Graham and Ellie for talks, get in touch at the same website. And if you're troubled by anything you've heard, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or an equivalent service in your own country. Thanks for listening. Mates in Courage. Catch you in the next episode.